Oh. The kids may be dismissed to junior church. That's my fault. Some of them do that already. Well, good morning. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, who, what, who is this guy? So, uh, being your, your pastor is kind of stuck up north in the, in the snow. Um, I was able to be on call and um, fill in for him this morning. So, uh, as Ben mentioned, my name is Isaiah Rice, and uh, I hail from Dresserville Bible Baptist Church over in Moravia, so not too far, not too far away. And I'm, uh, I guess they keep me around uh, as a youth leader. Um, and I haven't, haven't kicked me out yet there, and I teach Sunday school, mow the lawn, a few things like that. Um, and occasionally fill in, uh, fill the pulpit for folks and for pastors and churches without pastors. So uh, it's a pleasure to be here and an honor to share God's Word with you this morning. Uh, we're going to be in Acts 27, if you want to turn there. And uh, the title this morning is Principles for Surviving the Storm, uh, Getting Through the Storms of Life. Uh, even though we're, we've gotten snow, I wouldn't say this is exactly a, a storm, but we're, we're going to experience some before the winter's out. And um, a few things I've learned about Acts, uh, just finished up teaching uh, this, through the summer, the last two summers, adult Sunday school through Acts. And I've only made it through two-thirds of the book. Uh, but one thing that's stuck out to me is um, these are a lot, of, a lot of heroes I've made from the book of Acts. I mean, we think about uh, Peter in the start of the book and, of course, Paul with the, the second two-thirds of the book. Um, they're the main figures, but even small figures. We think of Barnabas, uh, the encourager, the great encourager. Uh, he's part of the book. We think of Silas. Uh, he's part of the book, and he's, he's a great encourager. And in small little characters, uh, Aristarchus we meet in the book, and we, we know that he gets saved in Thessalonica, and he follows Paul throughout his days traveling. Um, the same can be said with Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, little bit characters in the book of Acts, and they've all caught my attention, and uh, I've really enjoyed that book. I haven't taught through this, but I have come up with a sermon from Acts 27, and um, the sermon because we really have to tell a story before we can get to the, the meat of the matter. So this morning it's going to be kind of telling you the story, refreshing all of our memories from Acts 27 and get the context. And then the last part of it will be telling you the principles from this. And really what we're doing is we're watching and learning. So if you're anything like me, I learn best when, so, when someone says, watch how I do this and follow. I mean, you can tell me how to do it. You can allow me to read how to, how to attack a project, but I, I'm best when I can find somebody and mimic them. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're, we're trying to mimic Paul in this, in this story. Paul's going through a difficult time. He's going through a physical storm, but how he responds is hopefully an encouragement to us in our storms. And one thing I've learned from speaking in different churches and meeting different Christians is everyone's going through some sort of storm. I mean, some are big, some everyone knows about, and, and many are small and within your heart, and maybe no one else knows about. And so all of us are going through certain storms, and uh, we, we need to understand how to deal with them. But Acts 27, if we start there, uh, I'm just going to begin reading. And there are a lot of different uh, geography, there's a lot of different geography in here and sailing terms, and so I'm going to butcher a little bit of that. But just bear with me as we start right in verse 1. It says this, and when it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So entering a ship of the Adramidium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us. 
And the next day we landed at Sidon. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him liberty to go to his friends and receive care. When we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea, which is off Sicilia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. When we had sailed slowly many days and arrived with difficulty off Schneidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lassia. So the first part of this story gives us a little bit of what's happening. And of course, Paul is just uh, given a little bit of a defense um, before Festus and Herod Agrippa. And of course, that's the famous passage where Herod Agrippa says, you have almost convinced me to be a Christian, and we might have let you go if you not had appealed to take your case to Caesar. So Paul is getting ready to sail from essentially Caesarea over in the area of Israel all the way across to Rome. And remember, he's still a prisoner. He's not a free man, so he's put under the the custody of Julius, a centurion. And Julius is going to be in charge of taking Paul, along with other prisoners, to Rome. And so a few things we we know. Luke is a firsthand uh, witness to this situation. Notice it says that uh, in verse 1, it was decided that we should sail to Italy. Very funny. Luke, throughout, uh, he writes all of the entirety of Acts. Sometimes he's talks about they, and sometimes he talks about we. Sometimes he's a first-hand witness, sometimes he's not. But in this case, he's, he's on board and he's with Paul. Um, an ancient writer, Thomas Walker, said of this passage, no such detailed rec- uh, record of the working of an ancient ship in the whole of classical literature is recorded quite like this. It's, been inter- it's kind of interesting as I study this that Luke, when he writes this, a lot of... Um, People in the past have gone through, well, you know, was Luke really there? And Thomas Walker and others were, a, um, were fascinated with the ancient workings of ships. And they said, you know, if, if someone, a sailor had written this, they would have included a lot more details to what had gone on. But if Luke wasn't there, he couldn't have given the exact details of a landlubber is what a lot of them would be called, right? Luke was not a sailor, so he, he records things that are very specific, but not the way a sailor would record them. And I found that was interesting. Um, we, we noticed the kindness of Julius throughout this passage. He's the fourth centurion that's mentioned in Scripture. And all four centurions are mentioned in a positive light, of having some sort of faith, some sort of belief. Um, we find one of the first Gentile converts in, in Acts, uh, was a centurion, Cornelius. And then we see something that's familiar if you've flown in this country. You don't just get on a direct, uh, direct ship going right to Rome. You have connecting ships. And so it finds they get on a ship here uh, that's called of the Adramidium, which would be a smaller ship. So we would understand this. If we're flying to California or we're flying to Alaska, we might fly out of Syracuse on a small, smaller plane, go to a larger airport and get on a bigger plane where everyone's being funneled to and filtered to, and then we go to our eventual destination. And that's the same way they ran things in the, in the olden times, uh, only they weren't flying, they were on ships. So we find the second ship that they board is an Alexandrian ship. Would have come out of Alexandrian Egypt, be hauling a lot of grain and supplying all the uh, food needs for, the, for Rome year-round. So they get on this second ship, 
And verse 7 says, When we had sailed slowly many days, arriving with difficulty off Schneidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. Passing it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens near the city of Lassia. So the wind has just not been in their favor. It's slow going. So we're on this big ship, this big freighter, but it's slow going. So let's continue the story in verse, verses 9 through 12. Now when much time had been spent and the sailing was now dangerous because of the feast, uh, the feast was already over, or the fast, I should say, that's the Day of Atonement, Paul advised them saying, men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. Nevertheless, the centurion was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening towards the southwest and northwest in winter there. So there's, like, again, a lot of nautical terms in there, but essentially they've landed this big freighter hauling grain in Fair Havens. And the idea is, okay, uh, the Day of Atonement is passed. That's October 5th. So we know this, uh, living in the climate we do. If you have a major uh, construction project, something you're going to do outside, you understand that if you've made it to Thanksgiving, it's probably not the best time to start. Uh, you, you might as well wait. Um, if you have a big camping trip that didn't happen through the summer, you, you don't, no sense taking it now. You wait till spring. And it's the same part here. They've made it to Fair Havens, and the idea is the winds are bad. Uh, they're not, we're, fighting, we're fighting the winds, and the weather's only going to get worse. So maybe we should stay in Fair Havens. But Fair Havens was an open port. It was open to bad weather. It wasn't a good place to stay in winter. And so there's a decision going on. So Paul says, uh, men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. So Paul gives his two cents, um, but it says here, Julius was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship. So the captain and the owner, uh, they convinced Julius that, you know what, uh, we have Phoenix, which is only 40 miles away. It's not that far, uh, 40 miles away. I think we can make it. And um, so they continue on. Um, <clears throat> Fair Havens, we mentioned that, was not a good spot to winter. They're going to try to make it to Phoenix. So let's see if they do. Verse 13, When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. Uh, that's just a funny way of saying they wake up one morning, the wind is going the direction they want to go, and they say, this is our day. We can make it. Forty miles you could do in a day. It was a long day, but you could do it. So they said, this is the day. Let's go. We can make it. We sail right along Crete. We'll make it to Phoenix. Verse 14, but not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Euryclidon. So when the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. And running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, we secured the skiff with difficulty. When they had taken it on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, fearing they should run aground on the Sirtis sands. They struck sail and were so driven. And because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship, on the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we should be saved was finally given up. So we see what happens is they start out, this is a nice day, and then all of a sudden the weather changes like that. They have this, uh, I'm not sure how it's translated in, in your Bible, uh, New King James calls it Euroclidon. 
quite literally, that's a nor'easter. That's what that means, a nor'easter, and we're familiar with that. They get caught in a nor'easter, a fall nor'easter, and they just they can't control their ship anymore. Um, I thought of this, just a little bit of personal application of this. You know this, our worst days, uh, our worst days in our lives, when most of the time when we wake up that morning, we're, we don't know it's going to be our worst day. Tragedy strikes like that, doesn't it? Very quickly. And you think about these sailors, they're thinking, getting up, it's a beautiful morning, there's a light wind, perfect, we're going. And by the end of the day, they know this is a, this is a bad, bad day. Our worst days in life, we don't get warning, right? We don't get a, a, a letter in the mail saying, hey, you're going to have tragedy strike this day or this moment. It comes quick, doesn't it? We have to be prepared. It says that they pulled up the lifeboat during this storm, so they'd be dragging the lifeboat kind of behind. And so they think, hey, if the ship goes down, we're going to need that lifeboat. So they, they pull it up into the ship, and then it says they also cable the boat together. So they're caught in this... The, 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 the sea is just back and forth and the boat's caught in it and it would break that boat apart. So you would either run a cable underneath the boat or from side to side and pull it together, you know, cinch it together. And that's what they're doing. And it's getting bad enough, it tells about they're, lighting the, they're lightening the load. So it says they, uh, uh, verses 18 and 19 describe that. The third day the ships tackle, they, they throw in, throwing it over with their own hands. Now when the sun nor stars appeared for many days, no small tempest beat upon us, all hope that we should be saved was finally given up. So three days of this storm, and they're losing hope quickly. They've lightened the load, they've thrown their own gear off, their own personal items off, and the storm's not letting up. As we wrap up the story, let's read the next section, and this is where Paul jumps in again. Verse 21, But after a long abstinence from food, then Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not, take, uh, and not have sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For there stood by me this night an angel of God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar, and indeed God has granted you all, the, the, all those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men. I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Verse 27, Now when the fourteenth night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors sensed that they were drawing near to some land, and they took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be fifteen fathoms. Then fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. It's been mentioned there's no atheist in foxholes, that's, and, and that's the case here. These, men, they're on the, these are not Christian men, but all of a sudden they know this is our last chance to begin to pray, right? <clears throat> Verse uh, uh, 30 says, And the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship. And when they had let down the skiff, that's the lifeboat, into the sea under the pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. And the soldiers cut the ropes of the skiff and let it fall off. So if praying didn't work for these sailors, they're going to be sneaky about it, right? So they tell everyone, hey, we're, going to, we're setting down more anchors, but instead they're setting down the lifeboat, right, to make a, make a quick getaway. Leave everyone else behind and get off the ship that's sinking. And Paul catches wind of this. He says, no, no, no. God has told me we all stick together. For whatever the reason, Paul says, we need to all stick together. 
and the soldiers find out what's going on, and they cut the ropes and let the sailboat or let the uh, lifeboat, life raft go um, away from the main boat. Verse 33, and as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them to take food, saying, today is the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from your head, uh, from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and all took food to themselves. And in, and in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough and lightened the ship, they threw out the wheat into the sea. So now they're throwing their payload out. Uh, a few just quick notes from that. Paul speaks to the crew. Paul's being Captain Obvious here. He says, you guys, you should have listened to me. We wouldn't have run aground. We, we, we wouldn't be wrecked here. Um, but he moves on. We notice it's 14 days this is going on. 14 days these men have not eaten. And this is a drastic situation. Uh, they sense land nearby and they put out their soundings, which is kind of an interesting way of doing it. You'd have a heavy item at the bottom tied to a rope and you would put some sort of grease on it and you would sink it down and you would have a way to measure it. And when you pull it, you know, when you'd hit bottom, you pull it back up and you just measure. Okay, they were uh, 20 fathoms. And so as they move closer, they drop it back down, pull it back up. Okay, uh, we're 15. So they know we're, we're go- getting close to something. They sensed it. Um, we talked about the sailors trying to escape. Paul encourages them to eat. And then lastly, we see this last-ditch effort to try to make it to land as the chapter ends. Verse 39, When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach onto which they planned to run the ship if possible. So they don't know where they're at, but they know there's a beach out there somewhere, and let's, let's try to run the ship onto it. Verse 40, And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosening the rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for shore. So in, our, in my terminology as a truck driver, this is foot to the wood, pedal to the metal, right? We lift our anchors, full sail, and let's crash right into this beach. That's what they're doing. Verse 41, But striking a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. So they, they crash on some low ground. Uh, they're not to the beach yet. There's two, uh, two bodies of water that are coming together, and it's now tearing their boat apart. Verse 42, And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, that's Julius, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim jump overboard first and get to land. And the rest, some on boards, some on parts of the ship, and so it was that they all escaped safely to land. It's an amazing end to the story. 276 soldiers, prisoners, sailors, all floating, swimming to the beach off a ship that's being just torn apart. They make it safely, somehow, some way. And just as God had told Paul, not a, not a hair on their head was harmed. Somehow, some way. So I tell you this story to give you some principles for your, your life, right? You're not, you're not on the seas. You're not sailing along the coast of Crete. You're not doing those things today. You're, you're in Preble, New York. But how can this passage possibly help you? Well, I have eight principles, and we'll move just very quickly through them. Eight principles for surviving the storm. The first one that came to my mind in this passage is, number one, if you're going through a storm in life, don't be influenced by the temperature of the room. 
the temperature of the room. I, I realize for a lot of you, maybe you, the community you live in is, is a, is, it could be a cold temperature. Maybe the home you live in is it's a tough situation. Maybe your workplace is very tough. Don't be influenced by the temperature of the storm. I love this idea that Paul is brave, 275 or 76 people on board, and he's willing to get up in the midst of them. 14 days of not eating, thinking you're going to die, and he has... Uh, He's not, he's not bummed out. He's not bummed out at all. Uh, I often think of the old radio, sh- radio show uh, Adventures in Odyssey and how it fascinated me as a kid. They had this imagination station. And it was, a, it was an item, it was like a time machine. You, you got in it and it would transport the young people on the show to all sorts of different periods of time and history. And I loved it. This situation right here, Acts 27, the first part of it, would not be a place you would want to go in the imagination station. It wouldn't. I mean, you're on board a ship and people are not eating. People have thrown all their personal gear overboard. Now they've thrown all their cargo overboard, which means their long payday for three months' work is gone. They're not getting that. These guys are bummed out. These guys are thinking they're going to die. This would not be a place that you would want to be like, ah, yes, that would be an awesome place to see and witness. Absolutely not. I mean, we know how the story ends, but you're thinking this is pretty much, this is, this is death, and this is not an easy death. This is a slow bad death at sea. And Paul was not influenced by that. You have a bad workplace, home life, don't let that be an excuse. Don't let that bother you. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller was talking a little bit about how bitterness develops in an interview I listened to. And he said a few things. Uh, We can get bitter and we can be influenced by the temperature of the room, those around us, when people either... So when people say... um, you know, I don't agree with you. I don't, you're, you're too cheery or whatever. We can have two attitudes and both lead to bitterness. We can say, well, I don't care. I mean, imagine Paul. Paul starts, you guys should have listened to me. So there's two usually natural human responses. Is I don't care what you think. Um, Paul can be like, I don't care if you guys all die. You should have listened to me, right? Um, he could have that opinion. He could also have the other opinion of, I don't respect you guys. You guys didn't listen to me. And so I hope you, you deserve this. You get, you get what you deserve. Paul didn't do that. Paul, again, turned back to them, and we're going we're gonna to talk more about how he cared for these people. Matthew 5.16 says this, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify yourself. No, that's not how that ends. Glorify your Father in heaven. That's why our light shines. Our light shines so that we can glorify God. That word glorify is a word that it's a, it means beautification. We're making a world that does not know God. They do not know God like we know God, but in our behavior, in our light, we're allowing them to see Him in a better light. Beautification. They're seeing Him better than what they have. They, they, they view God. I mean, yesterday, Jared and I were able to be part of a small group knocking on doors and sharing the gospel with people. And people have a very uh, broad view of what God is, who Jesus is. Very broad. And so hopefully our light in your workplace, in your community, helps glorify God. To the ones that are unbelievers, the ones that don't know Him well, they look at you and say, you know what? They're a Christian. God must not be this terrible person. Jesus Christ maybe was real. Maybe He was the Son of God. And that's what our actions do. And so don't be influenced by the temperature of the room, no matter how bad it is in your life. Number two, remember who you belong to and who you serve. I love this in verse 23. Paul says this and giving his little uh, address to these sailors and soldiers. He says this, 
For there stood by me this night an angel of God to whom I belong, number one, and whom I serve. I love that. I, I study that a little bit. There's this idea of I am his child. I am not here to just, uh, I am here to work for him on earth. That's the idea of serving. The word there he uses for service is a very general, it's an employee, it's a slave. He says, I serve this God. Just like you soldiers, you're serving Caesar. You sailors, you have a captain, you have an owner of the ship. I have someone I serve, and it's God. All right? And I don't just serve him, but I belong to him. And this word belong really, really uh, stuck out to me. What does it mean to belong to God? What does it mean to belong to God? This may not be the best analogy I have for this, but I live uh, five minutes from where I grew up. My parents, I bought a house five minutes from where I grew up, but I, don't, I no longer live in the home that my parents do and where I grew up. And I have many friends and neighbors that say, Isaiah, if you ever need a tool, you come right to my garage and get it. Or if you ever need to borrow my tractor or my skid steer, you just come and you get it. Or if you ever need a meal, you're welcome to come to my house. And even if we're not here, you open the fridge and you treat our house as your house. And, you know, that's just still, as, as kind as they are, it's still just not natural to come to someone else's house and borrow their tool or to eat something out of the refrigerator when they're not there. Even though they've welcomed me to do it. But when I stop into my parents' house where I grew up and where my family is, there's an essence, even though I don't live there anymore, I still belong there. I'm meant to be there. I'm opening the, the refrigerator. I'm drinking my dad's chocolate milk. You know, I, I'm there and I, I, the other day, uh, it was last Sunday, I stopped by and my mom says, what do, you, what do you want? You want anything to eat? I said, yeah, I want two grilled cheese sandwiches, you know. And she says, wow, that's fancy. And I said, that's, that's, what I, that's what I'd like. And she says, I'd be glad to make them for you. I feel at home, even though I don't live there, I belong there. I don't have the audacity or, or brashness to do that with even a close friend, but because they're my parents and I, be, I belong here, I, I'm, I'm home here. And that's what our relationship should be like towards God is that I, I belong to Him. I am Him. No matter if I'm uh, preaching the gospel in Berea or Athens or Thessalonica or I'm in a jail in Rome or I'm on a ship that's about to sink, I belong to him. And this situation is not, uh, it's not unawares to God. He is right here with us and I belong to him. And that's a powerful thought. And I, I've had a pastor who's, who used to drive this home. Believers need to, they need to believe and belong. You need to have a church home and you need to know uh, that you belong to your heavenly Father. Number three, in our storms, we need to do this. Believe God's word and trust that he will do as he says. Verse 25, Paul says this, Therefore take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. Simple faith, right? We have such, we have such words in Scripture that are laid out in front of us, and I often think this, do I actually believe this? Oh, I know this, but do I actually believe it? And then does that belief actually have any sort of bearing on my life? Paul says this quite simply. He says, I believe God's word. I believe he's going to do everything he told me. That angel was here with me. The angel said, we're all going to be fine. We're all going to be fine. No one's going to be harmed. I believe it. Right? If you're thinking 14 days without food, we've thrown all our cargo overboard. We don't even know where we're at. Come on. You know, come on, Paul. But Paul's very strong in that. I, I believe that. You believe the word of God. Um, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, Romans 8.28 says this, and we think. That, no, it doesn't say that. And we hope. No, it doesn't say that either. It says, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I love that Paul used it that way. And we know. We don't hope. We don't dream. 
We don't think. You know, it, we know, we know, we know. And Paul says, I know, we're going to be okay. I believe that God will do just as he tells us. No matter how bad our country gets, no matter how, how bad our situations get, we have so many promises in Scripture and we don't have time to get into that, but there's so many promises that God gives to his children. A simple belief is just a great thing to have, but we often lose it in our sense of storm or in our season of storm. Number four, in our storm, we need to be concerned with the needs of others. Be concerned with the needs of others. Verse 33 says this, And as the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them to all take food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. This is, this is the beautiful thing about this story. It's not just Paul preaching to them. It's Paul saying, You know what? You guys need to eat. <laughs> we've, got, we've got a ship to get off from. We've got to get to this island. You guys need to eat. You need to have something to eat. You're, you're wasting away, right? And you say, well, you know, there's not, a, I mean, I could afford to lose a few meals, and I still don't, you know? And these guys, 14 days without food, they're withering away. And Paul says, you need to eat, right? He's concerned with the needs of others. Philippians 2.4, one of my favorite verses in Scripture says, let each of you, that's all of us, let each of you look out not only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. We're supposed to consider others value what other people needs are and i love how this verse says he says it doesn't mean you don't you're not concerned with your own problems but don't just be concerned on your own interest you've got to be concerned for others you got to have your antenna up what are other people doing with what other needs are there out there um and i love that verse in philippians in times of difficulty don't just focus on yourself and your own storm remember what i said at the start we're all going through some sort of storm so I might be going through a storm and I'm going to be trying to get through it. And the beautiful thing about, and we're going to talk about this in, in another couple points, this is such a broad point, but if you guys are helping me through my storm, I'm helping someone else maybe through their storm, you're working together. Uh, be concerned with the needs of others and don't just get locked into, woe is me and my problems. Number five, this is maybe my favorite, but number five, publicly give thanks for all that you have. Publicly give thanks. In your storm, and this is, this is very true if people know you're going through a storm. Sometimes people don't know you're going through a storm. But sometimes people do. Everyone does. I mean, we've, we've all seen it, right? There's probably people here in your church that are battling cancer, or some sort of disease. Everyone knows that. And they're wondering, wow, you know, that, that poor, poor woman, that poor man, what are they going through? And it is such a testimony when you have those folks. Maybe they've lost a loved one. We, we know it's, it's obvious when they get up and say, you know what? Yes, I've had this loss. Yes, I have this storm in my life. But I'm thankful, for, I'm thankful for this or this or this. I mean, we're in the right season for that. But it shouldn't just be one week or one day in November that we do this. This should be our life attitude. Publicly give thanks for all that you have. Verse 35, so exactly what Paul does. And when he had said these things, he took bread, gave thanks to God in the, key word here, in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. There's nothing wrong with having your meal and giving thanks to God privately but what a testimony even more when you can get up in front of 276 men and say, thank you, God, for this meal that you've given to us. That's an amazing thing to do. Um, publicly give thanks for all that you have. Matthew Henry, the old Bible commentator from hundreds of years ago, said, had, and you probably heard this, but he, he was robbed on the street. Someone uh, robbed him and took his wallet and fled the scene. And Matthew Henry got home and he began to think about 
again, what does this mean to me in my spiritual life, and how am I supposed to take this as a Christian? And this came back into my life this year as I had my wallet stolen, and I researched the story again, and Matthew Henry said this. He said, number one, he came up with four things he was thankful for in being robbed. And he said this, he said, I'm thankful that this man had never robbed me before. All right? This is the first time he's robbed me, hopefully the last time, but he's never robbed me before. Number two, I'm glad, I'm thankful that he took my wallet, but not my life. Right? He did not end my life. Uh, He took my wallet, but that's just something that's temporal. I still have my life. I'm still breathing. Number three, I'm thankful that he took all that I had, but it wasn't very much. And maybe that's your testimony today. Maybe you open up your wallet or your purse and there's three pennies in there, right? You say, I, I hope, I say, you're welcome to it, right? Matthew Henry says, you know what? He took everything I had, but it wasn't that much. And number four, he said this, I am glad that it was I who was robbed and not I who did the robbing. I'm not in a place where I have to rob. I know the Lord. I don't have to steal from someone else to, to make needs or pay for anything else in my life. I don't have to do that. And I'm very thankful that the Lord is in my life because of that. I had a Sunday school teacher as a young adult who, who just drove this home in my life. Uh, as young adults, it was so easy, again, as we'd gather 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning, we're all kind of there and tired. And, you know, people are starting again, first time in their life, they're working full time or they're going to school and working or they've really got serious relationships and maybe their, their boyfriend or girlfriend broke up with them. And so a lot of times it was easy for our conversation before class to get started to be, oh, woe is us, you know, um, for various reasons. And he was very keen on picking up on this and he made it a point to say, you know what, we're going around today and you're not only going to share something you're thankful for, but it's going to be something uh, pertaining to a storm in your life. So you're, you're upset because a relationship fell through, or you're upset because you blew a brake line on your car and you don't, you're trying to fix it and you don't know if, how you're going to get to school tomorrow or work tomorrow. I want you to find something in that situation to be thankful for. And i tell you what, five, ten years later, that still sticks with me. When I have a storm, when I have a season, you know what? I need to find something specifically about the storm that I'm thankful for, that I can give thanks to the Lord for. And even more so if I can do it publicly. Number six. Well, lastly, we know this verse. First Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Again, there's not a young adult out there that doesn't want to know the will of God. Right? What's the will of God in my life? Well, here's the will of God. In everything give thanks. That's the will of God. That's, that's the beautiful thing about the will of God. It's not, it's not this mysterious thing. A lot of it's very specific. God says, you know what's the will of God? That you give thanks in every season of life. Number six, encourage those who are distressed. Encourage those who are distressed. Verse 22, 25, 36, Paul uses a specific uh, phrase here. Uh, verse 22 says, and now I urge you to take heart. Verse 25, therefore take heart. Verse 36 uh, <clears throat> then they were all encouraged and also took food for themselves. Encourage those who are distressed. In your seasons, maybe you can have a bond. Maybe you're going through something that someone else is going through. Or maybe you've been through something that someone else is going through. That's so important in our life. Encourage those who are distressed in, in our times. Take heart, that's, that's a phrase that's only used one other time uh, in the original, in the Greek. It's only used one other time in Scripture it's found in James 5.13. And it simply means to be of good cheer. It's really, we're heading into the Christmas season. That's, that's the term. 
Be happy. Be of good cheer. That's what Paul is telling these hardened soldiers and these sailors. They're thinking they're going to die. He says literally, be merry. It's Christmas time. He's not really saying that, but that's the same word we would use. Be happy. Be glad. Right? That's what he's saying. And uh, we need to encourage those who are distressed. He wants them to have high morale. Ecclesiastes from the Old Testament says in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. Verse 10, for if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. I was reminded of this yesterday. You know, you visit, you, you never know who's going to come to the door when you knock on it. And, and one of the things that the pastor that organized this was encouraging us, he said, you know, holidays can be a very lonely time for people. You know, maybe family's moved away. Maybe family has passed away. Maybe the person never really has had a family, right? Uh, there's a lot of situations, and, and we all think, you know, oh, Christmas, Thanksgiving, that's great, but there's a lot of people that spend it by themselves or working or isolated. And I just was reading this verse last night. That, you know, woe to him who is by himself, for if he falls, he, for if he's alone when he falls, he has no one to help him up, to lift him up. Hopefully you can be that person. You can find that person to encourage that's distressed. Number seven, do not take our cues from unbelievers. Do not take our cues from unbelievers. There's twice in this situation where Paul and Julius kind of step in and stop what's happening. So Paul has, again, he's addressed them and said, you know, we all stick together. God's going to deliver us. But both the soldiers and the sailors represent a part of uh, the world and the culture that aren't saved. They aren't believers. They've heard and they've come up with a better scenario to get out of this storm. Number one, what was the sailors uh, after they've made their foxhole prayer? What was the sailors' mode for escape? We're going to sneak out on the lifeboat. We're telling everybody that we're going to just drop anchors, but we're getting on the lifeboat and we're leaving. And that was exnade. And then what did the soldiers want to do? Right? They're, they're afraid the prisoners are going to jump ship and escape. And that means, listen, if any of them had the death penalty, we take the death penalty if they escape. That, that was how Rome operated. So they were like, listen, this boat's going down. These sailors, we got how many prisoners? Who knows on there? But if any of them escape, we bear their, uh, their essentially punishment. So they say, we're killing them all. And Julius says, no, we're not doing that. And I found in life, isn't that the case when you're going through a storm and unbelievers that mean well and, and they, they're, not, they're not against you and they might even, you might even count them as friends. But they often have advice that is not biblical and not helpful to us. And in our storms, we oftentimes are looking for any, any advice, anything to help us through because all we want to do is get through this storm. And listen, do not take your cues from the, un, uh, the unrepentant, the unregenerated. It's a mistake. And clearly God had told them, you know, the, the answer is not to get in the lifeboat and sneak off. It's not to kill everyone. That's not the answer. It's to stay with the ship until it's time to get off. The ship is going to go down and we're, going to, we're all going to go together. We're going to float right to this, this island. Um, in the midst of our storm, we must not follow unbelievers into a shortcut. When we take our lead from unregenerated people, we live uh, by default in a place that's opposite God's plan for us. God has a specific plan for us and oftentimes it's so easy to listen to what the world is telling us to do, right? If you're lonely, you follow this path. If you, if, you haven't, if you don't have enough money, you must do this, right? I mean, there's all sorts of things that the world will tell us to do when we've been given simple answers in Scripture. And then lastly, the last principle is live in and be satisfied 
with God's bestowment of grace, his daily bestowment of grace. As we close, I want us to turn to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. 2 Corinthians 12. And Paul sums up a little bit of his life, his kind of adventures in ministry. And, <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot of themes to this, but he kind of, he gives us just an amazing account of some of the things he's been through in life and why God has allowed him to go through so many storms. And it's not just times of shipwreck, as we're going to read. Actually, if you back up to chapter 11, verse 22 says this, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. So this guy's He's been whipped a lot. Verse 25, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak, who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation. I mean, just it's amazing what Paul went through in his life. I mean, we think, man, whoa, it's me. Somebody slammed the door in my face. I'm just trying to like wish him Merry Christmas and a happy Thanksgiving and tell him there's hope. I mean, Paul went through way more. I mean, whatever you want, times 1,000 of that, right? And he kind of gets to the point uh, in chapter 12, verse 9. He's saying, is, this is what he's quoting what Jesus says to him. And Jesus, or he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. In Paul's weakness, right? All these things certainly make him weak. Sleeplessness, tiredness, you don't have enough clothes, it's cold, you're beaten up, you're bearing scars, all those things. They all make us weak. None of, them, none of us would want any of those things in our life. But Jesus said, My grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul says, I've learned to welcome all these things, all these negative things into my life. Why? Because Christ's power, Christ's grace rests on me when I'm in this state. And that's when the work of God gets done in my life. That's an amazing thought. I'm not there. I don't know about you. I'm not there. I'm not comfortable to welcome that upon my life as Paul did. But in reading this and meditating on this, my hope and my prayer is we get one step closer to accepting that. That storm in your life, allow God's power and His grace to rest on your life in that case and bear through it and bear under and in His grace. We're going to... Uh, uh, close my message in a, in a word of prayer briefly, and then I believe there's one more song as we close. Dear Heavenly Father, I th thank you for giving an opportunity to hopefully in encourage folks through difficult times and encourage myself through difficult times. And um, certainly there's many different seasons that come upon us. We have certainly much to be thankful for and blessed, and certainly there are many parts of our life that we would say, you know what, the Lord has given us so much more than we deserve. But well, there are times where maybe we haven't given up to you um, the, the idea that, you know what, your, your will for my life may be to show 
the world and Christians alike how to go through a very difficult public situation. Or maybe there's hurts and things that we just can't get past and we're not willing to forgive people and move on. Lord, I pray that we would be working in our own hearts this morning and this afternoon to, to make that right and to move on under the, in, under the power and the grace uh, that you give us daily to allow us to make it through each and every day. And in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.